Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Good morning, Ned. Ciao, Davide. Guten Morgen, David. Dobro jutro, David. Dove sei, Ned? Sono in la città di Gorizia. I'm in the elegant Habsburg town of Gorizia, or Goritz, or Gorizia, depending on whether you're speaking Italian, German, or Slovene. There are delays expected at the border with Slovenia, as the Jan Tratnik fan club arrives en masse in town, brandishing life-size replicas of the Slovenian time trialist thighs, and bellowing crudely about his capacity as a bicycle rider. It's overcast, with heavy rain forecast throughout the race, and the possibility that we'll be treated to a static finish line shot for hours on end as the signal gets interrupted. In the meantime, though, it's 6.39. Here's orchestral manoeuvres in the dark and Joan of Arc. Neverstray's Farfalle Giro d'Italia morning show special podcast is brought to you by Chapter 3 and The Roadbook. That's a really catchy name, isn't it? The Neverstray's Farfalle Giro d'Italia morning show special podcast. Anyway, Chapter 3 was created by you, David Miller, in 2015 with the vision of creating cycling clothing that you would wear as a retired racer. Now for 2021, Chapter 3 have made cycling kit to meet you wherever your ride takes you. They're calling it Most Days. It launches in only a couple of weeks' time. So make sure you sign up via the link in the show notes to get access before anyone else does. In 2018, Ned and a team of dedicated enthusiasts delivered the inaugural edition of the Roadbook Cycling Almanac, an annual publication supplying day, essays and anecdotes from the racing calendar. The Roadbook 2020 and past editions have become the definitive companion of any fan of the sport. To be the first to hear about limited pre-order runs for future products and exclusive promotions, sign up by the link in the show notes. commentary was pretty special wow wow what where where had contador when he was racing been hiding all that passion all that character i know amazing it's like watching a different guy right oh he really is and his commentary as well because um it does commentary on spanish tv and uh and he's just a totally different guy. It's amazing. It's it's kind of like you said. It's like he just had it all locked down. And I mean, it goes to show hats off to him that that it, he was such a dedicated racer. 
because the passion was there, but it was all just contained to win. It was, um, it's much like we talked about with Mark the other day, Cavendish. Although we see Mark's passion the moment he crosses his finish line, Contador just kept it constantly buckled up because the way he exploded and when he saw one of his team, team, his new team, I think you explained one yeah. of the early podcasts, um, that he ends alongside Basso going to win yeah. Zonkalan, he just lost his mind. It was it like, was, um, it was like yeah. a meme. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. There's That's been a couple like that. I remember, I mean, I, I used to, I used to, I used to, back in the day, I used to encounter, well, you would have seen him on a daily basis at races. And I used to encounter him quite often, especially towards the latter end of his career where he learnt sufficient English to actually answer questions occasionally in English at the race. And I, I just, um, I always quite struggled with him as a, as a rider because I couldn't really find, I couldn't really get to the kind of substance, you know, he, he certainly wasn't, like we've seen this generation are quite prone to giving quite fresh and revealing post-race interviews, mm. aren't they? they? There's been a lot of tears recently and things like that. And Contador, like you say, was the opposite of all of that always. And the other, and yet I, I first, like a couple of years ago, I interviewed him on stage at an event in London and it was, it was like a different, a completely, mm. like you said, a different human being was sitting in front of me. And Jan Ulrich was very much the same, actually. Yeah. You know, he just, he just looked like someone at the tour who, for good reasons, really hated his job. Um, and, uh, I know he's a, I know he's a deeply troubled person, Jan Ulrich, but, but also there's a great sense of humor and warmth there as well, which I never knew existed. So, yeah. I guess, and also that comes from that generation where it was the kind of the riders against the world. And, you know, for some rightfully so, others wrongly so. But it was, um, there was very much that standoff and kind of lockdown and the media were enemies. And often uh, yeah. everybody was enemies really outside of the peloton. And uh, and I guess the younger generation don't have to confront that so much. Uh, so I guess it's, um, maybe that's part of it as well. Who knows? I'm quite looking forward to today's pod because you've watched the race. I did. I watched it. Um, I didn't watch it live. I'll be honest. I, I no, went back. No, that and would I, be, yeah, that would be crazy. Be, yeah, no, that would be ridiculous. I wouldn't want to get yeah. so emotionally involved. But yeah. um, I uh, I did watch it back, and the advantage with watching it back is I was able to speed Zonkalon up. <laughs> I wasn't. <laughs> I know. I, I was like, where are they going to go? I was like, oh, hang on, I'm going to find out. <laughs> yeah, kilometer 14, 13, 12, 11, 10, yeah, 9, 8. went on forever. I yeah. finally yeah. Saw, saw Simon Yates like pop out like a champagne cork. And I was like, pause, here we go. <laughs> so it's kind of humblingly simple when you do that, isn't it? It's great. You, know, you, run, you, can actually, yeah. you can actually reduce it to like one or two moments if you look at it like that. I mean, it's not true, is it? Because there's lots no. more going on than that. That's a huge build it's up. another way of just appreciating it, isn't it? It's, it's quite funny. But um, before we get on to your in-depth analysis of that one moment, David, I have to mm. say, you might notice I'm speaking a little bit quietly. I have noticed that, yes. I'm, quite, I'm in quite a lot of trouble with um, the entourage, with the people I've been travelling around with for two weeks now, two and a half weeks, because because I podcast at six o'clock every morning in tiny Italian hotel rooms with paper thin walls right next to them. And, um, to deep into a grand tour, the gloves come off a little bit <laughs> about, you know, like minor irritations, things that have just been eating away at you a bit day after day after day. And just over dinner, when we we're finishing off the tiramisu last night, there was a bit of a, 
from uh, Roberto, actually. Roberto said, Ned, are you podcast in the morning? And I went, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, what rule number? <laughs> and I said, 205. And he went, oh, that's okay. And then Massey looked at me and went, oh, no. Because he realized he was next to me. So, um, Oh, dear. That's so, not good. Tell me, yeah. they can... If they if they want, you can put me on speaker so you can actually get, they can actually get two sides of the conversation. Oh, that's um, true. I mean, double the annoyance, but perhaps yeah, because I'm wearing headphones, so yeah, they can okay. only hear me. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you've already yeah. ruined it for them. Their mornings. You may as well just give them some quality content. I mean, there'd be people who there'd be people who pay money to hear the no, podcast. Really? Yeah, no, no, they wouldn't, would they? No, if that was true, then we'd be monetizing it. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's an interesting concept, so, though. It is a very interesting concept. It wouldn't oh. work, David. Wouldn't work. My dog. Ah, hello, dog. Oh, talking yeah. of which, well, in the ballpark, I've just had another dream as the alarm oh, went yeah. off. Um, just deal with it quickly because we've got the race to talk about, which is very good. And also, I don't really understand this dream, but I don't know if you, I don't know if you've got any sort of thoughts about it. It started with me inside this building talking to a very tall cameraman i know who works uh who, who works on the um itv's darts coverage and does the big close-up massive close-ups of like the triple triple 20 triple 20 and the bullseye and all that sort of thing and um he's a triathlete and he said to me he said to me those glasses you're wearing they're cheap and nasty aren't they and i said yeah but i travel around they'll get bashed and you know they're battered and all this sort of thing he says take them off take them off, show me. And I did. And I realized they were filthy, which is why I couldn't see properly. Right. And, mm. and he said, take them outside into the sun and I'll clean them. And you put the glasses back on, you see what a difference it makes. And we, we both stepped outside and he cleaned my glasses. I put them back on and all of a sudden we were looking out over the Mediterranean and he was making this point about um, perspective to me. And he was saying, he was saying, the the uh the surface of the sun is in in fact um, incredibly is rippled with flames and huge towers of escaping gas and it's incredibly dynamic but if you're far enough away from it it looks completely round and i went you're right you're right i suppose if you magnified a snooker ball it would have lo- lots of little dump- bumps and lumps on it but actually if we stand far enough away it looks perfectly round and then i pointed out at the horizon and i said and i said Look at that. Look at the horizon. It's completely flat. At hmm. which point, Simon Brotherton, BBC's cycling commentator, suddenly appeared from nowhere and said, Oh, right. Are you a flat earther? Oh, wow. And then I okay. woke up. Okay, that's an interesting one, Ned. I mean, Good luck with that, David. Well, now I think it's something interesting about this is the fact that what was the building like you were in? Indes- indescribable? It was no. It, it looked it like was. I'd picked up where I'd left off in um, De Koenig Quicksteps. So the Polytechnic canteen. still. So it was again. It was this. It was this. Universe. Yeah, it was this institution so seat of st- learning. Sort of seat of learning. So you're in a seat of learning. Were there windows? No. No. Hmm. Not until we stepped outside and then saw this big horizon, this vista. See, see the way you describe it first it makes me think almost like it's a, it's an artificial womb, and you've. Um, you're inside and that's your world. 
and <clears throat> you don't know anything different. You're still in there. You're a little bit lost. And so this angelic figure of stature. Um, the, the cameraman. Yep. The cameraman. Almost <coughs> in a in a sort of, I'd say, fraternal, father-like way, wants to, Paternal, to help yeah. you. Um, wow, this is... It's to sort of, it's to break you out of there and say, look, you don't need to be here, Ned. There's more out there. You don't need to keep looking inside yourself. So takes you outside and and suddenly you reveal that you've been leading a myopic life and confined oh. within this this hunt to know more. And yet actually it's all out there if you go outside and just open your eyes and see for yourself. But even out there, once it's all revealed to you, you're still going to have to deal with people accusing you of flat earth. Being a flat earther. <laughs> and so if you, you might take that a little bit too hardly. And if you do, if the the paternal cameraman isn't there, you might your glasses might instantly get dirty again cloud and up, you'll cloud just up. cloud up and you'll disappear back into the building. Because once again you feel like you're an imposter out there in the big again? world. Yeah. I think it's just a, it's another twist on the imposter syndrome, Ned. Yeah, I think, day. I think you might find yourself back in that seat of learning in the next stream as well. <clears throat> but oh, the man. good thing is your subconscious is trying to break you free of it. Okay. Mm. So, yeah. Right. Something like that. Okay. Anyway. But just I'm, keep, keep I'm, plugging yeah. away. There's progress being made mm. here, Ned. Thanks very much, David. I feel yeah. better already. Good. Yeah. Good. So, what did I miss in the, the first part of the race before I started hitting the. Oh, Astana. Astana Movistarred themselves. Big time. Oh, lovely classic. It's the order. Hit out so, too hard. There was a category, there was quite a big climb. Um, category two climb, which is tough actually. And it was about uh, 60k from the end, from the final. So it was about, when they got over the top, it was about 40k to the foot of the Zonkalan. Over the top. Big descent. Quite a technical descent. Dry roads. But Astana got on the front and started drilling it. In fact, they got on the front quite a lot earlier and started um, holding the breakaway at a kind of retrievable, potentially stage-winning kind of uh, distance. And it looked like it looked like a great move. And um, over the top of the climb, that was when they really opened it up. So on the descent, um, on the climb, they dropped Ghana, which was kind of objective number one, perhaps. Mm. Over the top of the climb, Gorka Izaguirre and Luis Leon Sanchez hit hit the descent really hard with Vlasov right on their wheel. And uh, those three riders put the pressure on. And what happened then was quite, was really interesting, actually, because um, Castroviejo had Bernal on his wheel and mm. they were following the Astana trio. And those five riders, um, plus Peo Bilbao, clipped off the front. And the longer the descent went on, they, they, br- they broke the peloton up and they had a... Gosh, off the off the bottom of the descent, they had something like twenty five seconds on everyone else. Holy wow! Yeah, like it, it, it developed really quickly. I mean, a significant gap, but quite a small group, twenty five seconds. Um, and then there was a group of most of the other GC favourites at twenty five seconds, and then there was a further group, another 10, 15 seconds back, that had once again, I'm afraid, it had Remco in it. David, yeah, I read this. I read so about this. on a descent, this is a uh, this is now becoming a bit of a a bit of a recurring theme with Remco yeah. Evenepoel. Um, we can discuss that as well. But 
for a while then, Astana then continued to pile the pressure on with Bernal and Castrovejo just going, this is okay. Mm. This is okay. I mean, all right, you're second in GC, but look at all the guys we've, look at all the guys we're getting rid of here. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you didn't, you, you, you sort of thought Castrovejo might work here, but he didn't need to because Astana were just hammering it and hammering it. And then you look back and so what was fundamental there was what, who's in that second group? How big is it? And who's going to work? And the answer was quite a lot of people. It was mm. quite a big group. You know, seven out of the top 10 in, in GC were, were in it. All of them had one or two riders with them. And so with the help of uh, Nico Roach, I think was there for Roman Bardet, but ultimately the rider who really made the difference was Alberto Bettiol looking after Hugh Carthy and one or two others, but mostly Bettiol. He brought them back hmm. um, after a bit of a fight, but he brought, he brought the groups back. And then of course, once those two groups had got together again, everything stalled a bit and Remco, his group was able to get back on as well. But it was only later when after the, actually after the stage had finished and I was, we were driving down and I was thinking about that stage of the race, David, that I realized, and it's one of these really nuanced things in racing that makes it just so fascinating. And you see this quite often, don't you, in various different guises, that Astana's move was good and it was the right move to try, I think. But actually it was probably too good yeah. because the, the, just prizing the Malierosa, just him away, um, was amazing because he was isolated. They had four, actually, they had four riders in that compared yeah. to Ineos's two. So on paper, you're thinking, that's the main, what a result. But actually, there are so, you've, you've distanced so many favourites with so much support that that group will come back. If they'd taken, if, they, if they'd taken a slightly bigger group away with one or two other teams there, yeah. one or two other leaders then you could have got something going there and it might have been very hard to come back, but it was actually too good. Does that make sense? Have I, that does, that have does I make total that right? sense. Yeah, it was too, um, it was like a, a, f- a very finale move rather than a, a kind of a, how do you put of the it? Stage. Middle of the stage. Yeah, avant finale. Um, yeah, you're right. And I think if they'd had some riders, some opportunistic, if there'd been a couple of EF riders in there, like a Hugh Carthy and Betty All and uh, Simon Carr sort of thing, or you had, yeah, some of the, like imagine if Simon Yates had been there and had a couple of riders, they'd have just put the yeah, hammer exactly. down with Estana. But of course, if you've taken the race leader and a couple of his riders or one of his riders, they're not going to ride. And immediately yeah. that neutralizes. And also, it does mean that everyone else has got a vested interest to chase behind. So yeah. everyone's chasing on. But that's not to say it's not a futile move because when you're behind a move like that, it does stress you out. You do burn matches physically and sure. mentally in the kind of the stress that it creates. So it was still, a, it remains a good move. Um, but you, when you've got a ride like Egan Bernal, who's just on the form that he is, it's so easy for him to be in those places. We're seeing he's the best uphill. He's, his handling is, is just amazing from what we saw at, uh, on the Strada Bianchi day. We know he descends well. And it's Egan Bernal at his best, which means it's so, he, he doesn't even have to try to be in a group like that. So it's, um, but yeah, you got to try. Um, and I think I'll be starting to realize just how good he is at the moment. Oh, he's absolutely flawless. But that wasn't the end of Astana's adventure because I think buoyed by, almost like collectively buoyed by their success, when all those groups coalesced again, they got back on the front, uh, you know, on this, on this valley, on this valley road approaching the Sonkolan. And they got back on the front with eight riders. I mean, the whole Whoa. team sat on the fr- the whole team sat on the front. Huh. Tailwind, 
amazing breakaway, by the way, um, working flat out from start to finish. They they just could not relent the breakaway. They had no respite whatsoever. They're all wow. going through and off. <clears throat> anyway, and um, and Astana sat on sat on and one by one as the slope started to rise towards the Zonkalan. Of course, they'd been working on the front. They just went poof, 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 until there were just two left, including Izaguirre and Luis Leon Sanchez. Actually, the guys who'd hit it on the descent. And they were the last riders left uh, for Alexander Vlasov, and they didn't last long. And then uh, Ineos just came past them a couple of k into the Zonkalan, and you went, oh, "Okay, they've movie starred themselves, haven't they?" Yeah. And then Izaguirre and Sanchez were out the back, and Vlasov was all on his own. Mm. And then Vlasov's legs came off in the final, and he thought, "Well, well done, Astana. That was great to watch, and it's entertainers, but literally blown up in your face there." I mean, there's yeah. probably nothing else you could have done. I mean. Ultimately, it it it, it you have it's to include Vlasov's legs strange, there. But, yeah, it's a strange know. stage to try it on, isn't it? I mean, it's not the most. It's, it's known not for being the most tactical stage. It's kind of it's going to come down to that final climb. You, if you've got a team that strong who are that motivated, it, you'd be better using it on one of those hilly random days and just putting the whole race under stress in a different way. That's that's sort of just piling it on on the front of the race tends not to work unless you've got a rider like Bernal who can deliver and a team that can take it all the way up to to that final kind of that final move so so yeah I mean it is a little bit of a it's it's curious let's say that they've done that they must have unless Vlasov woke up this morning and was like I feel amazing let's yeah. do this which is also possible but yeah my, my fear is that you see this happen so often, don't you? Particularly against a, a good Sky or Ineos mm. team, and that it backfires. That teams will be becoming, you know, in the years to come, more and more inhibited yeah. about trying it. And you know, it is good to watch. It's good drama. It's good theatre, sort of thing. But it is very rare that it yields anything other than a slight, a slight humiliation. Yeah. In the end, but I um, agree. because you, yeah, even even to be honest, Ineos Grenadiers don't try it that often these days. The last yeah. few years, they don't really do those big old school just trains, just trying to yeah. just wear everyone down and attack off it. Because even they know the the quality of the peloton is too high these days to to use such a old fashioned and simplistic tactic. You've got to be a little bit more uh, innovative. So, but hopefully for Astana's sake, they've learned from that and they can because they've obviously got the firepower and the motivation to to use it in a different way in a slightly um, more calculated way next time. Fingers yeah. crossed for them. Although it doesn't really matter if you don't have a blast, like a team leader who can deliver off the back of it, then it's futile anyway. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, anyway, what? Give us your, give us your, give us your take uh, on the so race. I, when I turned it saw. on, it was Luis Leon Sanchez, and that's on the front. So it must be near the bottom of Zonkalan then, from what you're saying. Yeah. And um, I was like, oh, that's interesting. A little bit surprising, but then I did see it kind of all stabilize a bit with the break. The break was about five minutes at that point, I think. And yeah. then it was just falling to pieces up front. Uh, but then I did kind of fast forward waiting to see when it was going to start to split off. I'd occasionally pause to see where Remco was, um, <laughs> who was kind of sitting in the middle of the group. And mm. it was, it's quite a strange sort of lead group, actually. It's kind of quite a motley crew of leaders, I find. Maybe that's just mm. me. Um, cause they're all great, big, they're big names. They're great riders, but it has that very much that sort of Giro GC feel to it, doesn't it? In the sense, there's, it's kind of locking down already. It's all very close, apart from Bernal, and you, you can't anticipate anything grandiose is going to happen because mm. of just how well Bernal's going. So when 
and you could see it sort of still in that group wasn't getting any smaller. No team was taking it. Ineos Grenadiers were quite happy with the situation, obviously. Seemed at this point, the breakaway, one of the riders in the breakaway was going to make it almost definitely, which again, slightly neutralizes that GC race behind because it's worth risking kind of your GC chances if there's a stage up for grab. If you think, because then that, that, that's another tactic you can play. But as it happened, it meant that because the stage wasn't up for grab, it was neutralized all the more. But then that was great because it meant that when Simon Yates did go, it was it was a proper move because he did he, he knew he was going just to take he was doing a GC ride. So he, a, a rider of his caliber, when he does an attack like he did, you know he's going to try and take it to the line. So the race is on immediately, and I think that was it from that moment on. Bernardus doesn't hesitate. Simon Yates looked amazing. I mean, he just looked so good, didn't he? he looked effortless. Looks yeah. Simon Yates at yeah. his best. And then we didn't really see much of what happened behind because of the very nature of the road and the narrowness and the hecticness of the breakaway up there. Didn't really see what was happening with the on that group because they were out of sight pretty quickly. Yates and Bernal, but yeah. it was watching Yates was really good to see because he was just on a different level and it was only Bernal who could match him and it was only Bernal near the top who who then obviously did jump him. But I think we can expect that. Um, uh, so yeah, that's what I was paying attention to. But unfortunately, I didn't see much of what, what was happening behind. Yeah, no, no, did, we didn't. I mean, it would be instructive, wouldn't it, to see who, as the group of favourites kind of exploded after Yates went and Bernal went with him, who was in that group, who was kind of, who just popped off and who was actually getting back on the wheel and kind of like who was going well and who wasn't mm. behind would be kind of, but it's a, oh, it's an insane climb. I mean, you, it was the different route that you mm-hmm. took up when you raced it, David, but similar, yeah. it's Didn't such an easier. unusual, it's such a, I mean, when you get to, up to the top, it's like, it's comparable only in my experience with the Galibier in the sense that it's a proper kind of, um, short, you know, it's a mountain pass oh, yeah. and it goes both mm. sides up and that. So it's a little mm. tiny bit that just dips over to a proper summit. And, um, but even the Galibier is slightly more sweeping when you get over to the top. This just goes up and down, you know, it's really pointy mm. and there's barely room. They had, they brought a, they brought a kind of mini infrastructure that they put up there, the commentary booths and various other little bits and pieces. And obviously the VIP canapé marquee mm. was there with everyone sort of shivering inside mm-hmm. it. And a tiny, they got what, the tiny mini podium. I've never seen one oh, really? before. A little scaled down podium, <laughs> diddy cool. one um, that everybody stood on a bit later. But there was a there was a good fight for the stage. I enjoyed that very much. I enjoyed that very much. It was a yeah. It was um, oh, Movistar were funny at the beginning when the break went because eleven riders got up the road. Bennett and Molimer were in there. Right, mm. and they both had a rider with them. So Molimer had Jacopo Mosca, and um, and and uh, Bennett had Eduardo Affini, the time trialist, who was in- incredible yesterday. Um, and Movistar, obviously, back in the convoy, they're going, they're going, they're listening to race radio. They're getting the numbers. They're going, okay, he's in there, he's in there, getting the getting the old highlighter out, like we do in the commentary. Okay, okay, go, go, go. then they look at the breakaway, and they realise they've got Nelson Oliveira. And they go, mm. oh, oh, can't really see Nelson winning on the Zonkalan. Not really. And by this time, by this time, the these 11 riders are going through and off instantly with Affini just doing these huge turns on the front, developing this lead up to a minute, at which point, and it's all kind of calmed down in the break, pretty much everyone's there apart from Bardiani mm. in, in the peloton. So they've let, they've let it go. And then Movistar go, yeah, no, no, I think we I think we need someone else in the break, like not Oliveira. So they start riding the break down, but the gap's a minute already, oh, and they're God. going. So Oliveira starts sitting on, 
Um, and Movistar for about 20 minutes, literally keep trying with two up attacks. So Jorgensen with Rubio on his wheel, oh, he'd no. go. And then Cataldo uh, with Valella on his wheel, he'd go. And then that would be brought back. And they just oh. never got more than about three seconds up the road, trying to get across a, at least a minute now. So it was never going to work. But oh, man, God. they just kept on trying. And so I, I just felt so uncomfortable for Nelson Oliveira. Yeah, it's pretty sore. You got your That's team just... full on trying to bring you back because you they don't believe in you. <laughs> that was <clears throat> I got this funny story about that. Uh, who was it? It was um, Chris Anker Sorensen from CSC back in the day um, with Bjorn Reese and when that team was in full flight. And actually, US Postal used to be like this as well. If you you'd get in a break, you had to be sure you could win, or it was a waste of time you being there. And you'd be called mm. back. Uh, and I think it was Chris Anker Sorensen and, uh, he was, uh, he got in a break for CSC and Bjorn Reese had come off in the car and asked him if, it, if he was going to win. And he said, I don't think so. I don't, I'm not sure. And Bjorn said, okay, pull out, go back to the peloton. And, <laughs> and Chris Anker got back to the peloton and his team were like, what are you doing here? And, uh, and I was like, well, Bjorn asked me if I could win. And I said, I don't think so. I don't know. And they said, what? Just, just always tell him yes. <laughs> <Don't>, <laughs> just lie. Don't, just lie. Don't do that. No, look, we're all stuck here. It's like, <laughs> I just love that. Just if lie. Everybody, if yeah. everybody did that, if everybody did that, you'd never get a breakaway, would you? No, exactly. You it just wouldn't work. <laughs> so yesterday's yeah. breakaway, you'd go, Eduardo <clears throat> Afini, can you win? No. Jacopo yeah. Mosca, can you win? No. The Aeolo Cometa guy, Fortunato, who went on to win the stage, would go, no, don't be no, ridiculous. I, don't, no. I can't win. Can't win this. So not nine out of the 11 would have said no, leaving Bennett no. and Mollimer. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been a two man, but yeah, I can. I can. And so can Bauke. Yeah. We'll it's just crack ha- yeah, on it's then. Ha- it's, it happened. So I was in, um, it was 2002 Tour de France and I was started on a really steep climb stage. I ended up winning and it was on a really steep climb for like five Ks. It was me, Jalabert, Michael Bogard. And Roberto Heras, we were there. And Heras was on postal and, and Lance was leading the tour. And uh, Heras, and we were, f- f- the break was going to go and we ended up being the break that did go. And uh, Heras was there and at one point he came up to me, patting him back and said, sorry, I've got to go back. Lance is calling me back. And I was like, okay, see ya. <laughs> it <was> like, <laughs> and it was guaranteed we were going to fight it out to win the stage. And it's like, Lance like, nah, you're coming back here. I didn't even need him for the day. It was just more... Just, this is not how we ride here. We're riding. I'm the only thing that matters in this race. It was super Amazing. cool. Yeah. Amazing. But takes some discipline. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Sky, <laughs> were, Sky, were, Sky were like that when they launched, weren't they? Yeah. Um, I remember, you know, never getting a breakaway. Well, breakaways are for stupid little teams. Yeah. <laughs> They're just for stupid. It's a stupid little thing to try and do. But that's, and, that was um, at the beginning when they didn't really understand the kind of the bigger picture. It's like when they brought the three meter high kind of... um boards to block people from seeing the riders and their TT warm-ups. Yeah. yeah. And it was, mm, doesn't work yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah. People have yeah. got to see you. But they've learned but they'd the sold, I remember they'd sold, they'd sold a little bit of sponsorship space on the, on the riders backside, hadn't they? Uh, that's IG, right. IG markets. That's right. Yeah. Had, had bought IG markets, which is like an online, like betting on the markets kind of thing. Spread betting. Yeah. Trading. <laughs> trading. 
they'd bought they'd bought the ba- the riders' asses basically the backsides, and the mm. only time you ever see a rider's ass is if they're in the breakaway. Yeah, from the from the moto behind the brake, and it's, it's like true. year after year at the Tour de France, they never got they never got their and they just like, after a two year sponsorship, they said, well, that was a waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> a stroke of genius. They pulled out. Yeah, um, I heard I heard the most amazing thing that I can't t- I can't say on the podcast, unfortunately. Oh, about well, well, thanks about what well you you probably know it because of your sister's association but what the 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 team were doing behind the scenes in terms of kind of marginal gaining behavior about 3 or 4 years ago at sky uh, but I can't I can't say what it is because it's just I, I it's conf, it's I was told in confidence it's not like do, it's not dodgy it's not sort of you know mm. like dodgy behavior no, no. on this particular it's occasion but it's it's just ridiculously detailed and kind of oh, over yeah, analytical yeah, crazy it's super amazing, but I have a think. my sister on one Whether or not I can say it, I'll have a little think. <laughs> Although my sister's now the CEO of Bell Staff, she still tells a great story of the the um the time the the day that uh, Chris Froome did his huge attack. It's amazing oh, yeah. the build up what, to the that, planning, the, the planning, and the stuff that went into it. It's yeah. it's bonkers. Yeah, yeah, from like two or three days out, they were kind of setting everything up, even with his fueling and overeating and just prepping his body up yeah. to go bigger that day. And having yeah. everybody out there on the road and yeah it's very cool but i mean the one thing that we were discussing this over dinner actually last night the one thing that it, it you know you can, we can easily talk about is and actually this is so with the benefit of hindsight this is so obvious like a few things that they have done innovations that they have introduced to the sport that you think well yeah i mean it's kind of stunning that no one was doing that before because it's so blindingly obvious and so yeah. effective but one thing that i'm mean, going back 10 years that sky brought to road racing, even when you were racing, David, bet mm. you weren't doing this, was hand sanitizers. Oh, yeah. Well, actually, no, so we started the that. Lesson, the yeah. lesson we've all learned during COVID mm. is just d- disease prevention. Yeah. Incredible. So, what's amazing with it, because a lot of the stuff we were doing in, in Slipstream in 2008, 2009, went immediately into Team Sky. We were doing altitude camps. We, we were doing all this. Uh, we did yeah. so much for it. Even the wet bags we used, the food we ate, the kind of the rice stuff. The thing was... We were hyper innovative to the degree that Team Sky actually took a lot of our stuff with them, mm-hmm. but we weren't very good at keeping doing it. We had that classic sort of innovator sort of mindset with short attention span. So you do it, be good, but you didn't have the discipline to keep doing it because it's all very well coming up with a marginal gain, but it only works if you keep that marginal game going over and over and over again, then adding another marginal gain and going over and over and over again. So after a while, they become an actual gain, a significant gain. But we were just the kings of finding marginal gains left, right and centre, and then six months later, finding another one and dropping that one. And and then not having yeah. the discipline within the team to make sure that everybody did it. Because the same with hand sanitizer, we did that, but then you'd have riders that just couldn't be bothered or you didn't have the culture to kind of, for people to actually believe in it and keep doing it. And I think that's the thing that people forget is probably the biggest contributor to that sort of marginal gain ethos because anybody can find it. It's not a lot of it. It's not rocket science fact. It's having the, the culture to actually keep doing it and to, to instill how important it is because at first you're like, it's, it, because of the very nature of it being a marginal gain, you're like, this isn't going to make much of a difference. <laughs> so you're like, well, no, it's not. But if you do it over and over again, then we're going to get another one and another one and another one, then it will start to make a difference. And it's, mm. that's the culture that's hard to build. So, yeah, you guys yeah. were just, you found a marginal gain, you were just too busy slapping slapping each other on the back going, we, hey, we well, ace that. That's amazing. <laughs> Woo. Let's wait and find another one. <clears throat> hey, David, I've arrived in a really cool part of Italy. I really like oh, yeah. it. 
Gorizia, Where? like I said in the introduction. I don't right know that up, past I, mean, I think. <clears throat> I could almost throw a stone out of my window and it would land in Slovenia. Ah, I've never been to Slovenia. Literally on the border. So there's, in the middle of town, the border runs through the middle of town. What? It's weird. And it's, you, we arrived in town last night and um, straight away you're looking around the, the, the main high street, sort of the main residential boulevard. I think the race is coming down here later on today. And the architecture is, oh, God, I mean, that's not Italy at all, is it? Mm. We're in the Habsburg Empire. This is Viennese. So it's all big, they call it Altbau um, structures, you know, those beautiful old sort of Germanic yeah. tenement buildings. And um, mm. t- it just looks completely different because basically it was built by the Austrians um, mm. <clears throat> in the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. <clears throat> but post-Second World War, um, there was a long-running dispute after the armistice was signed between uh, Italy and uh, Yugoslavia, as well. So Tito's Yugoslavia, about exactly where the border ran through this part of... So Gorizia, before the Habsburg Empire, was ethnically Slavic. And uh, Yugoslavia has a, a claim to it, a strong claim to it. But Italy, probably because they... Well, you know, I don't know why, but they won that battle and they got, they re- remain in possession of the old town, which is rather beautiful, as I've just outlined. Hmm. And Tito said, all right, you can have the old town, we'll just build a new one, the other side of the border. <laughs> so there's, there's Gorizia and there's Nova Gorizia. And oh, wow. um, I'm, if I can get over the border, I'll go and have a look at it. You should. Um, I, don't, yeah. I don't know Slovenia at all. That part it's, of the world. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. it's quite interesting because it's not a kind of linguistic drift, you know. It's uh, mm. it's it's a hard oh, border, and mm. it's and it's Latin, Latin on one side, and and you know Slavic language on the, on the other, and that's mm, that's the way it's yeah. That that's, bonkers. That's, uh, yeah. Um, so, should we in this podcast put in some of the yeah, Alberto Contador screaming? Why yeah, not? but you'll have it, it, you'll have noticed that you heard it earlier. Oh, because I heard it earlier because, today. Yeah, I you put it in it, there. Uh, you heard it. Uh, you put it in when you edited it. <laughs> I put it in right at the beginning before we start talking. Yeah, just after the uh, commercial sponsorship. Where I say thing, about Contador. Yeah, and then off the back of that, you said that Contador's good at commentating, isn't he? So that's uh, that's, that's how that works. Okay, good. That's, yeah. So that's you've probably forgotten because it was thirty minutes ago that you yeah. heard that in, in the edit that you minutes did. Ago. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the only other thing. The only other thing on the running order, David. <clears throat> Is it the planet Mars? I mean, well, maybe I was we talking about. Oh, okay. I can do it now. Have you got stuff to say about it? Well, no, because I've been thinking about it a lot of late. That's all. Because, um, well, you know, I've always got all my sci-fi stuff since I was a kid. So I've always thought about that sort of thing. You know, like mm. my two globes in here and in my kids' room, and and I think a lot about that sort of thing. And especially with all the stuff going on at the moment, with it's it's all reanimated with going to the moon and going to Mars, and there's all these talk of things. So I was listening to Elon Musk a, a bit ago and actually this goes uh, and he was talking about Mars because he's the kind of driving force in that if you like the kind of the well, talisman he wants to of, go there doesn't he he wants, wants to, to go there and he wants to, wants to go but and I, didn't, I wasn't quite aware aware of just how difficult it is obviously to get there but it's there's only uh, I think it's every two years there's a window or every 18 months there's a window to go there and it's a six month flight because obviously the, the orbit's elliptical so you can only nail it when it's closest to us which okay. means it's so if you set off at six months, then you're going to be stuck there for 18 months or something. And then it's six months back. So it's a fair old schlep. 
Um, Wait, whoa, whoa. I thought it was a one-way trip. I thought Musk was going there to retire and die. No, no, this is the whole thing. That's why they're He's building coming Starship. Back? He's coming, going to come back? He's coming back? Really? It's, yeah. Sorry, oh. Ned. <laughs> yeah. So this is the whole thing. This is why they're building that Starship, and then they've got to work out how to make fuel and stuff on Mars. And Hang on a second. Uh, uh, My daughter's. Yes. I want to get dressed. You want to get dressed? Can you just give me five minutes? Thank you. Yes. Daddy's um, got a very important point to make. About talking about Mars, Maxine, for goodness yeah, sake. Yeah. Um, um, but and it, once you're there, it's going to be a pretty brutal existence because it's, there's, there's obviously nothing there. It's got very thin atmosphere. It's, it's essentially a red iron ore desert. And you think, well, that's, and that's kind of people are talking about that as a good option for the kind of recolonizing, giving humans another, a chance. And the same goes with, with the moon, etc. And I was thinking, we've got it all here. You know, we've got such an amazing planet here. And we probably should be putting a lot of energy into this, into to what we've got. And I, this was kind of all, a, and especially when you ride bikes and you're out and you get to kind of be in, especially where I am in May, where everything's just so lush and green mm, and it's mm. stunning and it's beautiful. And you think how much we'd have to fight to grow one plant on Mars in kind of confined space. And you realize mm. just the privilege we have on our planet. And mm. the first impression I got of this, and this is where, again, where bike riding is good. And it's a good way to do it. Is when I was younger and living in Hong Kong and I was first getting into cycling, we were talking about mountains the other day. It was, had little mountains there. And I went, my first ever ride up a mountain was up a mountain called Tai Mo Shan. And it's the tallest in Hong Kong. And I found myself in cloud and in cloud for probably a good 30 minutes. And it was the first time I'd ever been in cloud. And it kind of got really weird. And because I was like 16, I guess, and 15. And I was in it and I started to get quite disorientated. And, and I think I was reading a lot of sci-fi at the moment at that time. So during my teens, so I was kind of already, my imagination was going wild. And by the time I came back out and came back down and pierced back through the cloud, as you'll know, it was just incredible, like tropical Hong Kong forest and landscape. And you thought, God, this is such an amazing place we live in. And it's, why would you want to leave it? It's... um we've got to fix it. So yes, that's what I was thinking about Mars. And I was thinking about just what a weird kind of thing to, to want to do. I get it. And I, I love the whole concept and how it drives technology and forces us to think differently. Yet at the same time, we probably should acknowledge just how amazing it is. And perhaps we have to go to places like that to realize how lucky we are to have this, I suppose, is the conclusion. Very good. Very good. I'm just yeah. still reeling from the concept of him coming back to tell us all about it with his holiday snaps and he'd do a PowerPoint presentation about it and everything, won't he? Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Netflix will do a series about it and be really boring. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> Not a big fan of Musk. Uh, yesterday, it was like J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter. Now it's yeah. Elon Musk and SpaceX. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> I got a lot of... um. Yeah, the J.K. Rowling thing divided people. <laughs> well, it tends to, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. A little bit divisive. <laughs> <laughs> How the Hemingway go? <laughs> yeah, Hemingway. Well, he is actually, in, in fairness, just a, you know, somebody said he's a misogynist and, um, and, uh, and that's true. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest otherwise, actually. Mm, it's and, uh, and, misogynist. And the, the book that I read um, was quoting yesterday, uh, also The Sun Rises, 
is uh, anti-Semitic. One of oh, the characters wow. is one of the characters is anti-Semitic. In fact, it re- you know, it's so so then you're in that kind of territory of is the author anti-Semitic or yeah. is he reflecting a you know? But either way, there is anti-Semitic content in the book that mm. is very uncomfortable to read, uh, mm. l- along with his misogyny. So I, I'm not on those terms. I'm not defending Hemingway whatsoever. Um, mm. And it's 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 yeah, it's almost kind of um, to my mind, it's borderline kind of cancel territory with Hemingway to some extent. Mm. And yet there's, um, there's, there's a stylistic, for me, there's a kind of stylistic interest in the way he writes. Um, it's, it's unique. You know, you can see a Hemingway sentence from a mile yeah. off and know that's a Hemingway sentence mm. because no one writes like Hemingway. No. No you know? one. For whatever value that is. Anyway, um, <coughs> we've got a, yeah, a race that's that Peter better, Sagan right? will win today. So I hope you enjoy Peter Sagan's victory. Okay. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Speak to you you tomorrow. Bye. Ciao, ciao. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 